This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah in the Old City of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. Today we're continuing our discussion on the evolution of belief. And what we had said, just those who missed it yesterday, what we had said was there is, that's you inside the expanding universe, and you're wondering what's outside there. So we, yesterday we discussed the atheist, and then uh, we discussed the agnostic, and, and then we discussed the believer. And then we discussed the believer. And this is the believer. And that's where we're at. So this would be a person who's inside here who believes. I don't know what happened to this person. They believe that there's something out there, and and you know the agnostic we we gave over as like the person who was um, intellectual. It was an in- intellectually sound position because because you know they figure I don't know what's outside space and time, so so there may be a god, there may not be a god. I, that's the agnostic. That seemed to be intellectually sound to not know. Whereas the believer sounds like a non-intellectually sound. The believer is almost like the atheist. Because the atheist believes there's nothing there, and the, and the believer believes something is there. They're both be- just believers. One believes there's nothing, one believes there's God. So the believer and the, the atheist have a lot in common. But there is such a thing, and especially when you come to Judaism, uh, especially when you come to Judaism and you're looking at things through the understanding of the Rambam, that... that it's not just belief. A believer isn't just a believer. A believer is really, in a way, is a knower. Like, for example, the four-second proof of God. You all know the four-second proof of God? Four-second? You know, it's called the five-second proof of God. I'm switching it to the five-second proof of God, even though I can do it in four seconds. But when I do it in four seconds, no one understands the word I'm saying. Five seconds doesn't help much either. But we'll call it the five-second proof of God. And... The five-second proof of God goes like this. Before there was something, there was nothing, and since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. Okay, very simple proof of God. Before there was something, there was... Everybody together, please say the word nothing. Before there was something, there was... Nothing. Some of you might be saying, why should we say that? Maybe there was something before there was something. No, (laughs) that wouldn't make sense. Because we're talking about before there was something, there was nothing. Is that clear? You wouldn't say before there was something, there was something. Because then the something was there. So it was before there was something, there was nothing. Now, everyone, whether you're a scientist or whether you're into God, no matter what, believes that before there was something, there was nothing. And that's why in universities they have a, a field called theoretical physics. Every university, not everyone, but most universities, have a department called theoretical physics. And their job is to figure out where we came from, because what does nothing make? Nothing. They all know that before there was something, there was nothing. But that's a major problem because now that there's an expanding universe, well, obviously, the, you know, that came from nothing and nothing makes nothing. So why is there something? 
if nothing makes nothing. So the job of a theoretical physicist is to try to figure out what is the nothing that made the something. That's their job. Now, why is it called theoretical physics? Why isn't it just called physics? Why is it called theoretical physics? Why is that department always called that? Why? This is where you raise your hand and answer. Because they can't know. Because you can't know. If you can't know something, but your job is to figure it out, so what is that? That's always going to be theory. If you can't know something and you try to figure it out, well, whatever it is that you figure out is going to be a theory. Why can't you know? Why can't you know what's before there was something? Because we live in the something. Okay, we live in the something, so it's kind of outside the realm of our experience. Why else can't you know? We discussed this yesterday. Why can't you know there's about the the nothing that precedes the something? Why can't you know? There. What? We can't go there. Well, we, so I, I liked hers that we can't go there, and nor can we create an instrument of measure that could measure it, because that instrument of measure would have to be an instrument that goes beyond space and time. Clear? So there's no way really to, 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 ultimately uh, know it. You can't know it. Okay. So since what does nothing make? Nothing. Nothing. So what's the five-second proof of God? Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, it must be that the nothing was God. (coughs) Let's just say, for example, Josh, over here in the back here, Josh is, uh, let's say he could make something from nothing, which, of course, no human being's ever been able to do because you can't make something from nothing. But let's just say Josh figured it out. You know what we call Josh? We call him God. Now, we're not nervous about that happening because no one's ever done it, no one will ever do it because when you have nothing, what do you make out of it? Nothing. Nothing Nothing will ever come from, nothing comes from nothing. (laughs) You'll never make something from nothing. It just could never happen. But since it did happen once, we give a term for, there's a term that, that describes a being that can do such a thing and that is the word God. God itself, the word God, doesn't mean anything. G-O-D means nothing. It's just a term we use to describe a being that can create something from nothing. Is that clear? Now, is this intellectual or is this a belief thing? Which one? Are we going intellectually right now or are we going more just blind faith? We're going totally intellectual. Because whether you're a believer, whether you're into physics, before there was something there was nothing. Well, what's the propensity of nothing? The propensity of nothing is to remain nothing. But in this particular case, nothing, I don't know, got, nothing got bored. I guess it's a little boring being nothing. Maybe life's a little meaningless when you're nothing. You know, because when there's absolutely nothing, well, there's nothing to juxtapose the nothing, to give meaning to the nothing. Meaning, can you be a god without having a creation? Are you god? I mean, do you ever get... Do you ever get the term God or Melech without there being a creation? When you die, you can go up to God and you can say to him, uh, you should probably thank me. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You're all thinking like, I'm going to ask God to thank me. But think about it. What is God? Before there was a creation, what is God? 
Well, he's obviously a lot more than nothing because if this being can make this place, orchestrate it, run it, this is an extremely, extremely incredible, great being. It's a being that is beyond our wildest imagination because think about it. You all have free will to choose dinner or movie. You all have free will to choose flayships or milk eggs. You all have free will? Yeah? Very good. Have you noticed that everyone's being orchestrated around you? You ever notice that? That all the other people in your life are orchestrated around you? But do they have free will? Yeah. So how could it be that everyone's being orchestrated around you, yet all of them are experiencing free will with everyone orchestrated around them? And that God's handling all this. God's, God's creating food for ants in the Amazon jungle. And at the same time, there's an aardvark wandering around, that's an anteater, looking for ants, and they've all congregated around the food that God provided the ants. And it's like everything's getting orchestrated not only for you, everything's getting orchestrated for the ants and everything's getting orchestrated for the anteater. With great precision. And what we discussed yesterday in great detail was how everything you've suffered in your life, everything you've suffered in your life is also... Um, it's, I invite people in. That's what that window's for. So I can wave people in. Everything you ever suffered in your life was custom made. Don't don't invite them. I, I, there are students who are here before. They have little kids outside, so I think they're not coming in because of the kids. Anyway, oh gosh, you guys are so distractible right now. Shalom, welcome back. How you been? Everything you've ever suffered in your life had your initials on it. Your parents had your initials. Your initials on it. Everything you've ever been through in your life had your initials on it. And would any of you deny? Years later, that it was not for you. That it, would you deny no. that it was for you? No one would deny anything they've been through wasn't for them. Everything is custom made to order, special delivery from God to you. Now, this believer. Someone who believes in God has what to stand on. It doesn't have to be blind faith. I understand that there are a lot of people out there who are believers just out of blind faith, but they're usually Gentiles. Gentiles can believe with blind faith because their belief doesn't come with a lot of liability. For example, a Christian doesn't have a ton of liability. And what do they got to do? What does a Christian, in the end, really have to do? And the answer is nothing. They don't have to do anything. And they get eternal heaven for doing absolutely nothing. I once asked, uh, I, got a, I got kind of verbally attacked by a group of Christians who were with their minister. And I asked, the, um, the, I asked them, I asked their minister, because they were not being nice, so decided that I'm not going to be nice back. And, and uh, I asked their minister if he believes that God is a just God. He says, of course God is a just God. And then I asked him, well, what kind of just God would have a Christian lie, cheat, and steal and do everything wrong his entire life, and at the end of their life they accept JC as their savior, and they go to eternal heaven while, while I wake up every day and serve God with everything I've got from literally from the second my brain comes back to consciousness 
till I go to sleep that following night, the whole entire thing is is spent in in service of God. Not to mention all the money spent and and the and the children and the weddings and the and the holidays and the all of it are all because of God. I mean, think about it. Why would anyone have eight, nine, ten kids? You could call the first two kids are theirs, and the other six are God's. Because on average, you might have had two kids, knowing our generation that someone who gets married might have two kids. So whose kids are those other six kids? And the answer is those other six kids are God's kids because of the mitzvah and the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Because without that commandment, even atheists might have two kids. Why? I have no idea. But they might have two kids. Maybe the kids... Because if you're an atheist, your life's meaningless. So I guess having your two kids, three maximum, because otherwise you have to buy a bigger car, and, and, the, and three max is going to add meaning to your life. So I understand perhaps why they would want that. You know, and boy, God better take care of those kids for them or else they're really going to have a meaningless life if something happened to their kids. But the, but the, the, let's just go back to the fact that a believer, if they have, oh, sorry, a little story is that is yeah this this is part of my I have a whole class called messing with Christians so this is just one little story in the messing with Christians class but they anyway so I said you believe God's a just God where I serve God my entire life with everything I got just everything I've got and according to you because I didn't accept JC as my eternal savior I'm going to hell forever and I said to the so I said to the the minister I said is, is that what a just God would do? Does that sound like a just God? And you know what he said? He said a line that I've heard them say before. He said that, um, I mean, it's, it's really a low blow. He's lucky I didn't punch him because Jews don't turn the other cheek. Okay? Jews, Jews strike. So and we also preempt too. So he's like, I didn't punch him before he said this, but you know what he says to me? It was the sickest thing that you could ever say to a person. He says, "Your service is like vomit." What? Yeah, he was quoting the prophet when the Jews were way off the path of Judaism, way off the path, but they were still bringing offerings. So God says, "I don't want your offering. I want your heart. Your offerings are like vomit to me." You know, which makes total sense in the context. But this was his answer. He decided to take it out of context and turn my service of God, which is totally heart service, and turn it into vomit. And this was a low blow. And you know what I did? I called him out. I called him out. And I said, I said, pardon me, Mr. Minister, but you know darn well the context of that particular sentence in scripture and you know what it was all about and it had nothing to do with my service of God and he and he I gotta give it to him he owned it that he you know he went for a low blow took a sentence out of context and he owned it he actually took it took it our religion is based on misquoting yeah of course of course it's all based on misquoting our, our Torah but anyway we're just leaving out all preceding context to a sentence or, a, or even a chapter. Anyway, so in the end, 
he took responsibility for that, and he let go of that. And I said, so what's your answer? Where's the just God? And then he gave the true answer. And you know what the true answer was? He said, well, that's just what we believe. Come on, everybody, we have to leave. <laughs> and he took the whole group out of the restaurant that we were in, in the old city. And, and as they were going out the door, I couldn't help but do it. So I did it. <laughs> I made sheep sounds as they walked out the door. Yeah, that was kind of a cheap shot, but I had to get him back. I had to get him back. Anyway, that's all part of my class called Fun with Christians. Yeah. Or did I call it Messing with Christians? Sorry, it's Fun with, fun with Christians. There's a lot of fun you can have with them. Like, like one of the things, I don't want to go into this, but you should know that they all think that you killed Jesus. <laughs> and they, they've been taught, I don't, know, I don't know how many hundreds of years ago, but they, maybe a hundred years ago or maybe multiple hundred years ago, they made an overall campaign. Do you know when it was? That we're, they're going to say the Romans killed him. And that, we're, that we no longer consider the Jews as, as uh, deocidic, theo... Theocide, Theocide, like we killed their God. Yeah, that that Jews are not God killers. And uh, they decided that. And that's why whenever you meet a Christian, they pretend like they don't believe that the Jews killed Jesus. But it's it's fun to uh, play with them a little bit on that one and just... Get, like, I mean, if you have nothing better to do and one of them sitting next to you on a bus, at least till you get off your station, you have till you get on the bus, till you get off on your station to get them to admit that the Jews killed Jesus. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I guess they made nothing from something according to them. <laughs> yeah, right. We made nothing from something. <laughs> so, anyway, but they, I've so far, I got very close where I was literally like up out of my chair on a bus getting on my stop. And the guy finally, he didn't know I was getting up yet. I was like about to get up. And I realized I'm going to lose my first Christian who, I, who, who didn't admit. So I finally looked at him and says, you know it, don't you? You know it. Because I knew I had to get off the bus. I didn't want it to be the first time. And he says, he's like, fine, you killed Jesus. And I was like, thank you. And I got off the bus. Like I almost missed my stop. <laughs> anyway, uh, ladies, there are a couple seats here. Um, yeah, bro, Frito. Yes, so where you been? Brooklyn. Um, Brooklyn. You look like you're from Brooklyn all of a sudden. Um, Haven't seen you in years. Yeah. Yeah. When I get this this this, this quote that you killed Jesus, I started from the other side, so I understand their their scripture a little bit, and I John their their John three sixteen states that he died for their sins. That was God's plan. What are you complaining about? You should thank us, I tell you. Right. You thank us. This was God's plan for you. What are you complaining about? <laughs> they wouldn't have a religion if they didn't believe that. So, uh-huh, so, they should be thanking so the why, Jews. For so time. I say, why are you spewing hate? It's just an excuse to hate people. Uh, uh, okay, could be. It, it also turns out that, that the Tanakh says specifically that no one will die for another man's sins. And, uh, and so it's... Uh, There's no human problem. Yeah, you're not allowed to... There's no such thing as a person dying for another person's sins, and and it's uh, the t- but the Torah goes. I forget the pasuk. Anyone know the pasuk there? What's that? Pinnit. What is that? Oh, translate it for everybody. 
sometimes the Chazal say that sometimes the tzaddik has to be taken from the world because of other, because of our, the sins of the generation. Yeah, that's a little different. That's uh, that's more like uh, the following. Sometimes the this, the generation has got got. Um, oh, we can turn the AC on now. Sometimes the generation has a major um, din. I mean, the generation, not an individual. The generation has a uh, what's the word din? And no, I don't mean literally. Uh, whatever. The generation's so bad that, that something big's going to fall on them. And and a tzaddik can die and alleviate that because he's and there's a reason in the physics behind that and that is because we're not all one soul. I mean, you realize that there's only six hundred thousand root souls. So uh, if you can, uh, madam, if you can look up on your smartphone, uh, fourteen million divided by six hundred thousand, and then you'll know how many how many souls just in perfect math that you could be part of. So, 14 million divided by 600,000 is? 23.3. Yeah, okay. Okay, so uh, close, uh, let's say 23.3. So, yeah, so you, let's just say, it usually comes out to around 24, but let's just say there are 24 of you walking around. Now, it could be some of them are in the soul world right now. You mean that's how many generations? If you do perfect math, at all times, there's 24 of you. No, 24 of you is just that you, what's your name? Yocheved. You and, what's your name? Giti. What? Giti. You and Giti could have the same exact soul. It's just that you went through your life with your parents and your neighborhood and everything you went through and Giti went through her life and her parents. And so each of you have your own narrative of your experience of life and each of you have your own body and your own character traits and stuff. Those are unique to you. But the soul itself, you share. In the same lifetime? And there's about 21 others of those. In the same lifetime? Yeah, with 21 others. Yeah, so now there are tzaddikim who are made up of much more than 23. You have probably 23 hanging around, but all 23, let's imagine these are the 23. Let's imagine these are the 23, but my arm could be one person who's all 23. Sorry, that wasn't good. Um, how would I put it? I guess in a visual I can maybe do it like this. Is that... Okay, and, and they're all connected to this. This is the soul. Okay? This is the soul. And... And now, obviously, there'd be 23 of those, yeah? And then, but that all starts again up here with this soul, who could be connected to a whole other, till you can have, like, for example, Moses was the sum total of all the souls of Israel. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai included all the souls. That's why when we light a yardside candle for Rabbi Shimon, we make bonfires, because it's, it's this... Whereas one candle for someone who passed away, it's a bonfire for someone who passed away. The reason we all make that pilgrimage to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's grave on his yard site, which makes no sense in the world. No one even, half the people don't even know what they're doing there. Like, go interview some Moroccan guy wearing a jalbiya, you know, and ask him, what is he doing dancing around drunk on Mount Meron? 
you know, every log volume. And you ask him what he's doing there, he'd just be like, I don't know. You know, we're, we're just all drawn there. Meanwhile, you got 300,000, sorry, you have three quarters of a million people drawn to this place. And ask any of them where Hillel's buried. Everyone's heard of Hillel. Not everyone's heard of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai unless you're raised observant. But almost every Jew's heard of Hillel. Ask anyone on the mountain where Hillel's buried. Do you know where Hillel's buried? Nor Hillel's buried? Nor Hillel's buried? Nor Hillel's buried? Nor Hillel's buried? He knows where Hillel's buried. You know where Hillel's buried? You know where Hillel's buried? He's buried about a, how many second, about a 35 second walk from the cave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And probably not a single person's buried, uh, visiting him. And uh, if anything, there's probably a couple of Nanach guys camped out in his cave there. You know, there's, uh, it's just ignored. And the reason is, is because Hillel was a great rabbi. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was one of these sum total souls that we're all coming off of. We're all directly linked to him. His soul was our soul. They believed in God and in Moses, his servant, and meaning, meaning that Moses was just the soul of all of Israel. He was the soul of Israel. And Rabbi Shemabayuchai was the soul of Israel. By the way, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, just to understand his place in history, is very important to understand, is that before Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, there were prophets. So if you had any doubt, that if you ever thought this world was real and not a digital simulation, that this is just an illusion, if you thought this world was real, well, all you had to do was meet a prophet. And the prophet, you know, just like, and then he's like, Ko Amar Hashem, thusly says the Lord, and you're just like, oh my God. And everyone around them, their hair stands up, and you're all having this full-on mystical experience around this prophet. So there was no Jew in the world who thought the world was real. Everyone knew we're part of this simulation that gets messages straight through citizens of Israel. Because we were a nation of prophets. But what happened? Prophecy ended. Because of our sages. Our sages are the ones who did it to us. And it was for a good reason. The sages prayed that God should remove the power of idolatry from the world. It used to be that idolatry was so powerful that you couldn't stay away from it. It would literally suck you in like internet. Idolatry had its power over people. It was like social media. You, you just couldn't put it down. And, and therefore Shabbat was like, Shabbat versus WhatsApp? Or, or uh, you know how many kids raised observant have a terrible test today between Shabbat versus Instagram? You know what a challenge that is for so many Jews who were raised totally observant. And no one knew that smartphones were going to take Shabbos out for thousands and thousands of young people who could not survive the, the, uh, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not very articulate today. Temptation. temptation. They weren't going to survive that temptation. Thank you. And that was what idolatry was and our sages said we're never going to survive with this idolatry business they prayed to God take idolatry out of the world and God listened he took idolatry out of the world and prophecy disappeared because they're connected idolatry and prophecy are connected when we lost idolatry when thank God idolatry went the power of idolatry not that people don't serve idols but it doesn't have the power it did and the uh, so to the the, um, 
that we lost prophecy through that. Yeah. So I was calling on Josh. I didn't see your hand was up. Yeah. Could you say that in a way, idolatry is almost resurfaced and is in a way taking over in the form in that in the form of uh, social media that now prophecy should return as well. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I would never have thought that that the, with the advent of social media that we need prophecy. No, but we do probably need something really, really powerful. And and I don't know. I mean, I have what to say on that, but I keep saying it and I feel like I'm over saying it. So you can ask me privately what might be coming out. So the... Um, but what I what I do feel is... Oh! Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai comes on the scene right after the prophets pass away. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai comes and reveals the Zohar. And the Zohar brings the understanding that this is a digital simulation. It's an entire manifesto of how the world actually, on like great detail, is a digital simulation, that none of this world's real. And that was meant to last, by the way. What Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai brought to the world with the Zohar was meant to last till Mashiach came. Except... It didn't. It uh, unfortunately it got badly crushed by the um, by Europe and everything that we went through in Europe, and then the Industrial Revolution. There was a lot of trouble happened, and and then the the words the the nail in the coffin of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his dream that it would last till Mashiach. The nail in the coffin was a man by the name of Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi was a false messiah who used the Zohar to learn how to do what's called practical Kabbalah, which is matter manipulation. He could manipulate matter, and then he went on to pretend, he, or perhaps he believed that he was the Messiah, got millions of followers, brought them even to Israel to like rebuild the temple. Do you know about this? Like, this is like 500 years ago. And he brought them to Israel to rebuild the temple. Millions! And it turned out that Shabtai Tzvi was was, you know, the Turks are like, who is this guy? And the Turks just took him. And that was it. Like, death or whatever, Islam or whatever. And he, he disappears. And all the Jews are like, huh? And they just like, that, that, it was one of the biggest blows to the Jewish world ever. Didn't he convert to Islam? They say he converted to Islam, but that's not so clear. Uh, if you know who Shabtai Sfi is, it's hard to believe he converted to Islam. He might have had a forced conversion to Islam, but he, he himself. The last thing he would have done was convert to Islam. I heard that like he, he was the guy who started the gate for the Sultan. Who started what? He was uh, the, the security guard at the gate for the Sultan. Probably not true. That's what I heard. Probably not true. And that he converted to Islam is also a joke. Mm-hmm. The he didn't convert to Islam, but he may have been forced to for life and death purposes. And then whatever that means, you know, there's... He probably lived secretly from then on, or who knows what happened to him. I, I've never heard of what the story of his actual demise at the end of his life. I don't know. Um, anyway, what happened was that there was such a backlash against Kabbalah after that, that there began this Ashkenazi movement called the Rationalist Movement. And that's why you might meet sometimes, you might meet people called Litfogs. You ever heard of the word Litfogs? <laughs> Litfox, today they're called yeshivashe, because no one's really a Litfok anymore, but they're people called yeshivashe. Yeshivashe people are people who 
unless you have x-ray vision, you wouldn't know they're spiritual, but you would know that they know a lot of Torah. Okay? And they're not obviously spiritual, but they may be. And believe me, I know some who are extremely spiritual. But you just, you'd never guess it. Like, they're con- extremely covered up in their spiritual path. And it's, uh, it, and it, which is kind of good for them, because then, as individuals, you can be like the most spiritual person ever, and no one would ever know it. They would just never know, because you're dressed in a business suit, you got a tie, you know, you, you just look like you're on, you can't tell if you're going to synagogue or you're going to a meeting in midtown Manhattan at a bank. And the, uh, and the, but they, they have very secret spiritual lives, these people. But the main thing that they were known for at the very beginning was rationalism. Everything has to be rational. Now, really, they were secretly very spiritual, because it wasn't like they removed resuscitation from the dead in the second breath of Shemona Yasser. Is that very rational? No. Resuscitation of the dead? Not very rational. They did not get rid of that. And they, they didn't get rid of any of the other things either, and their leaders study Kabbalah and stuff. You understand? These are the secretly spiritual people who went with this rationalist position. And they even made rules that people can only learn Kabbalah by the time, when they, by the, not before they're 40 years old, with a solid understanding of all the rest of Torah. They have to be married with children, grounded, 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 grounded. But the problem is, if you're overly grounded, what might happen? You bite the dust. And so, unfortunately, things were so grounded that the rabbis of the generation looked around and said, like, wait a second, if you're a scholar, you're spiritual, but if you're not a scholar, which was 97% of Jews, then you start to forget you're even connected to God, that you're even created in God's image, that you're special, that you're worth anything. You start to feel like the average European, which was like a nothing. And after a while, Judaism starts to turn south, like you start to lose your Judaism, because think about it. Who really keeps Judaism in the end? It's people with a sense of self-worth. If you have good self-worth, you'll probably keep Judaism. If your self-worth starts to tank, you'll probably not be keeping Judaism too well. And we've noticed here at Asian Torah the last 30 years I've been here, that there's a direct correlation between the secular guys who walk in, who have high self-worth, versus the people who have low self-worth. The ones with the high self-worth generally get traction here, and the ones with low self-worth generally fall away. Now, there's deep reasons why. I've been speaking about it in my last few classes, and we're not going to talk about it now. But the self-worth tanked because no one was really scholars, and, and Kabbalah's out, out the window, and now you can't really talk about the soul much. And, and, but if you don't talk about the soul much, you lose your spirituality. Because the only thing that's spiritual about you is your soul. Your body is not spiritual. Your body is flesh. It's meat. Yeah, you're a walking piece of meat with, with a soul. And if you don't have a good relationship with that soul, which you'd only have a relationship with that soul if there's some Kabbalah being taught, but what happened, it began the rationalist movement, and with the rationalist movement, the rabbi, many rabbis, great Kabbalists, looked around and said, we've got to like pick it up. We've got to pick this generation up. And that first person who did that was named the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov... Uh, who later, he was hidden at first, and he was revealed, and then he had some students. One of, one of, there's one great story that, that uh, there was rumors all around Europe that there's this miracle man. And since Shabtai this was the first miracle man since Shabtai So people are like really leery of this miracle man. 
and they they were not happy about the Miracle Man. And uh, one of the great rationalists was a the, he was the guttelador of an entire region of Europe, and um, his name what was the Magid's name? What was the Magid's name? Anyone know what his name was? Dubber. So he his name was Dubber. He was the rabbi of an entire region. And he got tired of meeting people who were stopping by Mesrich, not Mesrich at the time, but they were stopping by his town where he lived on their pilgrimage to meet this miracle man called the Baal Shem Tov. And he didn't like it. He was tired of it. And he said, that's it. I'm going to go meet him myself. Now, the people in the community were like, you're going to what? He said, well, I got, I'm going to go check it out. You know, like, we've got to be responsible. Let's see. Maybe we have to put an end to him. And so he disappeared. Now, going far away from where... He, he didn't live there, near there. So it was a several, I don't know, a couple weeks' journey to get to him. I forget where he was and what region he was. And then he needed several weeks back, plus he needed time with the Baal Shem Tov himself. Anyway, he comes back months later. And there's a big fanfare. They, the, you know, the gull of doors back in town, the, the great of the generation. They usher him in. It's a big festivity. They bring him into his home. And the... Um, and all the greats are sitting around, all the Torah greats are sitting around the table, and they're, they're, you know, they're bringing out l'chaims, and they're bringing out food and fruit and stuff, and so they, they all get quiet, they say, what did you discover? And he said that I found out that there's a God. <laughs> and they all looked at him like, what? I found out there's a God? And meanwhile, the Gentile, the Gentile, you know, housekeeper in the house was on her way out with a big platter of fruit. And one of the rabbis interrupts her on her way in and says, in front of everybody, says uh, to the lady, you know, who knows what her name was? What's a good uh, Russian woman's name? Olga. Olga, thank you. We'll go with Olga. Olga, where did this fruit come from? And she says, it came from the kitchen. He says, and before the kitchen, it came from the store. And before the store, it came from the farm. And before the farm, where did it come from? She came from the trees. And before the trees, where did it come from? She says, it came from the seed. And before the seed, where did it come from? And then she stands there a little stunned and says, it came from God. And they turn back to this great leader of the generation and said to him, the Gentile servant says there's a God. And the rabbi says, she says, I know. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, so that ushered in the Hasidic movement. And the Hasidic movement was, was back to the regular Kabbalistic wild stuff. They're really into Kabbalah and really into wild, you know, extreme measures of service of God. And the, uh, of course, that had its own backlash. There were people called the Misnagdim who went against them. They ultimately became known as Litvaks. Today they're called the Yeshivish and the Chassidim. But today no one cares about any of these things. It's like a, it's a non-political thing. It's, it, it, it used to be a big deal. Now it's really just, no one cares that much. But Jews, Jews do keep their traditions and generally Litvaks marry Litvaks. And, meaning uh, Yeshivishers will marry Yeshivishers and the Chassidim generally marry Chassidim today. But, um, but anyway, a woman follows her husband's path. So if a, if a woman from a yeshiva home marries a chassid, she now keeps Hasidic tradition. 
or if a woman from a Hasidic tradition marries a yeshivisha man, she now care, uh, keeps yeshiva tradition, which I'm not even sure what that means. I'm not sure what that is. And, and the, uh, but she now keeps it. Um, that's, that's basically the story. Now, uh, why am I telling you all this? Oh, is that 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 was there was having prophets around to remind you that this world's a simulation, but then the prophets disappeared. There was the Baal Shem, there was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai with the Zohar to let you know the world's an assimilate is a, a simulation. But then came Shabtai Tzvi, and then came along the the, the Hasidic masters to let you know that this world is just a simulation. And then came along the Holocaust. And later came along the internet and digital world and and basically in the 1960s came the psychedelic era hit the world. And though I'm sure none of you ever experienced psychedelics, the nevertheless you inherited a world not if you were raised observant, but if you weren't raised observant, you, you were born and raised in a world of parents who know that this world's a digital simulation firsthand. Not because there was a, not because there was a great rabbi who was telling you about you know, simulation, not because of prophets and not because of the Zohar, but because they themselves have had their own personal mystical experience just from having eaten a mushroom. And that's the world we live in. And that's why you'll notice that Hollywood can't stop making films about the world being a digital simulation. And people really feel that way. And they've even taken polls of how many people think the world's real, how many people think the world's a digital simulation after all. And you'll see that a lot of people actually believe the world's a digital simulation today. I and understand what you mean by the Rashbi let us know the world is a simulation. Uh, the Zohar is all about how God created the world, and as you study that, you'll start to realize the world's a digital simulation. But I have a lot of Kabbalah classes on this that are recorded live. You can watch them. There. It, it just, in a nutshell, it means that the world was created via light, and that light was obscured by worlds. And what's left when you obscure light with the with the worlds is you get a strobing effect. You understand? It creates a strobe of an on-off type strobe where I'm filtering out that flow of light, strobing it into creation, something from nothing, into creation at all times. So that'll be, what that means, though, is once you have a strobing effect, meaning you have light filtered out into this world, that means that everything's going to have its own frequency. So, so wood has a frequency, like a wood table, or wool's going to have a frequency, colors are frequencies. They now know all the digital. Obviously, they know digital color. You wouldn't be able to you know, see a photo today. Photos are all digital today. Which is just, there's a number that is purple. There's an actual number that's purple. Today, when we buy these LED lights, it actually comes with, I think, uh, it comes with numbers like, like 3,000 is more yellow, 6,000 is more white. The, these are frequencies. And they are colors. They even have taste now digitized. Did you know they digitize taste? And all the rabbis want to know what happens when you have one in 60, do you taste it? And they said, yes. And what happens if you have one in 61, do you taste it? And the answer is, you don't. Meaning, digitally, 
Uh, there is, but Bata Bashishim actually is a digital reality, which is an amazing thing. So they now have taste digitized, sights for sure digital, everything you're seeing. What? Even fragrance. Fragrance for sure, yeah. Everything's digitized today. And, and yeah, it's really quite fascinating. But this all was very important to understand. It wasn't just the psychedelic community. At the same time, the psychedelic community of the 60s in North America did their thing. At the same time, the physicists were understanding that everything's made of protons, neutrons, and electrons. It's just the question is their frequencies of how fast they're moving. And they have lasers that, there's a laser that you could shoot right through this board without touching the board and burn the wall on the other side. Because it's, it, the, the frequency that they have the laser shooting at will burn wood, but it won't burn the formica here. It'll dance between the raindrops of the formica without hurting the board and burn a hole in the wood behind it. Because there's holes in everything. The world's made of primarily the world's made primarily of space. And this is all the digital simulation. So the world now finally knows this. Like the world gets this. And these are these are mystical secrets that were kept in tribal traditions throughout the world and through Kabbalah, through our tradition. These are mystical states, secrets that have been always kept in the tribes of the world, which are now considered common knowledge. Common knowledge, meaning everything that the prophets were doing and everything all those traditions were doing at the, simultaneously at those days are is now become common knowledge. So we are extremely close to a revelatory period, extremely close to a revelation. Uh, we don't know how that's going to come out. We don't know what the timing is. Like uh, Bob Marley, Oliver Shalom said, we've got to fulfill the book. Yeah, that he says in a redemption song. No coincidence, it's called the redemption song. Yeah, some say it's just a part of it. We've got to fulfill the book. We've got to finish the prophecies. There's more prophecies left. And we're not done with them all. But most of them are almost done with and there's a little more left. And once we're done with those, so then that revelation will happen. What do we have left? Hmm? What do we have left? Um, we need the Jews to come home. We've got to get every last Jew out of Toronto. And then Brooklyn. We need the Jews to come home. That's it. We're, we're basically there. But we need more, more of that. But the uh, that's one of the things is to the Jews should come home. We're we're about half and half now. Jews of Israel, Jews outside of Israel. It's different opinions. So if you're really strict on who is a Jew, so we're we're we've been in a majority of Jews in Israel for a while now. You know, which means that a lot of things become derisive. Shemitah becomes derisive. Meaning that the real Torah, the real Torah strict position on who is a Jew today, the majority are in Israel. But how strict can you be? Every Jewish woman who might be a Catholic who has four kids, every one of those Catholic kids is a Jew. So we're far from a majority because all those assimilated Jews are having Jews. So if you have a looser tradition about who is a Jew, the vast majority of Jews are not in the land of Israel. Plus, who are we to say who's a Jew? What are we talking about? Judah? Judah's one of 12 tribes. 
Ben- Benjamin got sucked into Judah. So when the when Nebuchadnezzar came and got you know the, he took out the ten tribes. Most of them are in Afghanistan. They don't intermarry. They don't have divorce. They don't marry out out at all. They keep their line. The reason they don't have divorce is they don't they don't have uh, they've lost their tradition on the halachas of of divorce. So they're too afraid to mess up their their uh, the purity, the tribal purity. So so if someone gets divorced, they can't get married again. At least the women, I think. I thought they were lost. Yeah, go, you go get in Afghanistan and don't get lost. <laughs> Many of them have been in Afghanistan all this time. There are full card-carrying member Jewish people in Afghanistan. And they actually are reaching out now. Because of radical Islam snatching up their kids. And so they're, they're starting to reach out. But they're not reaching out to the government. Guess why? This, this government? Yeah, they don't reach out to the state. They're afraid because the Taliban or whatever will no. stop it. No, they they don't reach out to the state because the state is from the tribe of Judah. Mm-hmm. You may have recalled that they don't get along with Judah. They were at war with Judah. There were terrible wars with Judah. And who's more spiritual, the ten tribes or the Jews? Meaning the Yehudim, the Judeans. Who's more spiritual? You learned some Gemara. Who's more spiritual? The, all the other tribes are the Yehudim. Can't answer? They're, they're more spiritual. One of the ways we know that is, is, the, is that the king of Israel always had to read from the tribe of Judah. That's already a political position with it. Most of the Malchai Israel were, were not... Not something came most of the Malchai Some were, not all were. Malchai Yehuda. Yeah, they were good. But I'm just saying the position of being king is, is you know, our king ha- has to be a spiritual person, ultimately, but it's not a very spiritual position. That's why he has to have two Torahs. He has to carry a Torah with him in all time. It's not a very spiritual position. But there's another way we know. I was thinking if you knew, you were going to think of the Gemara about, um, about uh, Arison and Nisuin by Judah. You know that one? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to say that one. I'm not going to say that one. But that goes, Ju- that goes back to the previous discussion. <laughs> yeah. Judah, Judah's, um, whatever, Judah's a little more physical. And they were, they were given, uh, I guess I could say it. Think I could say it? Could I say it? Rather not. Rather not? Okay, I'll, I'll leave it out. But uh, whatever, there were certain halachas that that Judeans, I don't know what the right way to say it is, they, there were leniencies Judean were given, Judeans were given, tribe of Yehuda was given because they were more physical. I mean, look what happens to secular Jews. When secular people from the tribe of Judah go secular, they're, they're, they're immediately driving, you know, a Lexus or a Tesla or like they're going to, they're going to like, they're going to be Mr. Physicality. Now, now, now that's not necessarily a great proof because Kohanim, who are a very spiritual tribe, they often flip the other way when they when they go secular. So it's, it's not so clear. Oh my gosh, I'm tired. I'm so tired today. I'm having the weirdest day today.
I woke up on the wrong side of the planet. <laughs> now, I just gotta kill this, kill this dead bird here. I just want to do one more distinction before we say shalom to each other. Oh, it's late. Um, one more thing is that there's just one more thing I gotta show you, and that's you wondering what's out there, and this is the going to look just like the believer, right? Looks like the believer, except this person is what you'd call a soft core monotheist. They believe we're real, and they believe in a God out there. Uh, this is the hardcore monotheist. This is what real monotheism is. It's real mono. See, this person here is... Sorry, I should say monotheist. The, this person believes in one God. This person believes God is one. See, an infinite being, if there's a being that's beyond finite, an infinite being, it also has to be where? It has to be inside. He's, he's not called infinite for nothing. Infinite. So, see, the softcore monotheist believes we're real and that God's outside. The hardcore monotheism, which is Judaism, that's why we say Shema with our eyes double covered, eyelids in hand, is we believe that God is not only outside, but also where? Also inside. But when you bring God inside, so then things start getting a little weird. And that is, this is like the real picture of Judaism. So all the believers are, you know, the regular believers. And then there's, Judaism believes that God is not only surrounding space and time, but God is also filling space and time. And this is also, this was one of the major moves that the Hasidic movement pushed hard. They pushed this hard. Because this is how there's a possibility of spirituality. There's no real possibility for spirituality here. There's belief in something spiritual. Here, the spirituality comes in. It's tactile. It's inside. It's, in, it's your immediacy. God's not only eminent beyond space and time, but God's also the imminent. And then you'll understand why we have two names for God. The reason we have two names for God... And the reason we have two names for God is, is one of those names for God is the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. That's God's surrounding space and time, was, is, and will be. Whereas we have a, a name of how God fills space and time, and that is the name Elohim. which is obviously plural at the end, Yud and Mem at the end is plural, is how God fills space and time. So God isn't just surrounding, but he's also filling, like a burrito. Okay? He's the tortilla, and he is the rice and beans. And so everything's made ultimately of godliness. Everything is 
the whole world is a spiritual world because everything's a digital simulation coming from the light of Hashem. Because that's all there really is. It's just filtered light. The whole world's made of that filtered light. Shalom. <laughs> You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.